Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Deuteronomy 9 tonight, picking up from chapter 5 was the Ten Commandments, chapter 6 through 8 was Moses' kind of advice on how to live out the first three commandments. And you'd think that chapter 9 would just go to the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath. But Moses does not go there. Um, Instead, he's going to go into kind of a discussion of all the different times the Israelites have screwed up. And he's just going to go in and kind of list list those things. Um, And I kind of thought that was neat, even before we get to Hero Israel at the beginning of verse 1. I thought it was pretty neat that Moses is thinking like, if you can do the first three commandments, he assumes then that everything else just falls into place. Like his teaching on the commandments kind of just stops there. Like if you can put the Lord at the center of your life, not worship idols, other things around you, and not worship yourself, commandments one, two, and three, like that's pretty much it. Like everything else is just like what not to do. But those things are things like, these are the things you do, And if you can do those, you're kind of good. And I thought that was an interesting truth that I just absorbed as I was realizing he's not going on to Sabbath, which I love talking about. I was excited to get into Sabbath, but he doesn't go there. He's going to talk them of all their rebellions that they've had. So he's going to, this is kind of a review. He's kind of repeating stuff we've already heard as we've gone through Deuteronomy. Like any old grandpa Moses would do, they repeat themselves. And I think that's kind of funny too. It's kind of, it endears me to Moses that he's seemingly repeating himself. But I think as an inspired teacher, there's some extra stuff this time around on stuff. So verse one, Hero Israel, you're to cross over the Jordan today and go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself. Great cities, great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, who you know and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak. So part of why Deuteronomy is even here is that Moses is teaching and encouraging that next generation of Israelites. We know that. In the flesh, this is kind of the worst advice ever. Because if you're looking at Jericho and those high walls and you're looking at these people that are physically bigger than you, um, this is about the worst advice you could give. It's like if you told, um, if you told Berkeley that he had to go attack Shadow and Berkeley's looking up at this three-foot-tall dog, that would be terrifying. And the advice you do not give to that dog is, they're bigger and taller than you, and these people are mightier than you, and you're going to go up and fight them. That's what you get to do. So you'd think, okay, in the flesh, this is really uh, horrible advice. Um, In the spirit, however, Moses is setting up a chapter on humility that's pretty amazing, because the way we fight our battles is to start from a place of humility. And I thought that was really cool. So hero Israel is in the emphatic. Uh, It is that same kind of thing that he did back in chapter six, what he's done the whole book, which is listen up. And that listen up to me is again, that endearing, 
Grandpa Moses just telling the story. And every now and then he says, wake up and listen to this. I got an important point. But he seems to do that a lot. But this is another important point that he wants to get across. Um, today there, listen up, O hero, you're to cross over the Jordan today. Today is the word yom, and it means at this time or without delay. It doesn't mean today, actually, this 24 hours. It means at this time you're going to go up against the Jordan. Uh, so that's not necessarily an error in the Bible. It's just an interpretation issue as to how English translates from Hebrew. Um, they're going to get in in a few, in, 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 and as soon as time as possible, they're going to get into the mess that's way over their heads. And I love that idea. Their primary assumed role uh, is to stand in verse 2. Who can stand before the descendants of Anak? That's a rhetorical question. The answer to that, if you need it, is nobody can. It's impossible to stand against these people. So again, not the kind of advice that a military leader gives to his army. You're going to get into a battle and no one can stand against these people. So for those about to die, we salute you kind of thing. So the primary assumed role that Israel has in the face of the enemy is not to attack, it's to stand before them. And I thought that was kind of cool. Like a lot of times as believers, when we have to deal with people that aren't believers, what we're called to do often is live according to the law. And when the world doesn't like how we live, our response to them is, eh, we're good. We're happy with how we're living. And I thought that was kind of an interesting approach. Like the assumption here is that their job is to stand, not to attack and not to assault other people, but to just stand their ground and do their thing. The word stand is yatsab. It's the same word that got used in Exodus 8.20 when Moses had to stand before Pharaoh. Like his job was to just be there and be in front of Pharaoh and to proclaim the truth of God. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he falls. So the rhetorical question is, who can do this? And the answer is nobody. And biblically, that's really consistent in the New Testament too. We can't and don't have in the flesh the ability to stand in these situations ever. And that's a nice humble place to start life or to start our learning before the Lord. Verse three, therefore understand today. And again, same thing with the t- today is understand this as soon as you can. And the sooner in life that you can understand this, the better your life will be. That the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Understand today in the Hebrew is to know, perceive, or distinguish. The word is yada, which, yes, is only one letter away from yoda. Um, what? You don't think there's connections there? Just one letter. There's a daily element to understanding. To understand something is that it becomes a permanent part of your waking knowledge. It's just how you understand the world. Understand today. And the thing is that the Lord is your God and he goes over before you. So when God goes over and before us, we are both covered and sheltered and we have a front thing so that as we move forward, we don't have to encounter anything. If you're going through the jungle, for instance, you want someone to go in front of you with the machete so you don't have to wear yourself out hacking through the plants. You also, it's nice to have an umbrella so you're not constantly getting rained on. And in life, it's the same way. It's nice to have somebody that covers and shelters you. It's also nice to have somebody who goes in front of you so you don't have to pave the way on everything.
and wear yourself out. So if God's going in front, we don't have to wear ourselves out. So in this case, you got all the Canaanites that are going to need to move out of this land. And we come once again to the word destroy. Only the word destroy here is not the same as it was in the last chapter. So I think lazy English translators take these different Hebrew words and they just slap destroy on everything. Um, and even in this passage, he being God will destroy them at the end of verse 3. And then so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly. That's two different Hebrew words. And they have very different meanings as to what's happening there. So I think this makes it so that at least in the English-speaking church, this can be a really confusing passage. So we'll break it down because that's what we do. The first destroy, the one that God's doing, is shamad. It means to lay waste. It is kind of how we understand the word destroy. God judges and he does the heavy lifting. And when we get in deep, God takes care of it. So God does the destruction, not his people. And he'll take care of that because he's in a position to judge. To drive them out is not necessarily to kill them. So clearly destroying them and bringing them down is to humble them or to make them understand their place. And then the, when it says, so you shall drive them out, clearly the destruction that we're talking about, Shamad, does not mean physical death because you can't drive people out after they're dead. That would be hard and heavy. And you can't bring people to humility if they're dead. So I think it's to read this really carefully, he will destroy them and bring them down before you so you shall drive them out. The goal here isn't death, and that's in the English how we understand destruction, is that somebody's dead when they're destroyed. So one of two things is happening here. Either we need to understand destroy like the Hebrews understood it, or there's a spiritual element to this that God's really talking about a spiritual battle, and he's not talking about physical ones. And that's kind of an interesting way to look at the conquest of the Holy Land. The goal was to drive them out, wasn't necessarily to slaughter or eliminate them at this point and in this passage, if we understand that. So if God does all that work and he does the driving out, that seems, again, consistent with the rest of the biblical narrative. These Canaanites had a chance to leave. And the goal was that they left of their own accord. It was only the Canaanites that wanted to stand and fight that we're going to get their fight and God was going to kind of take care of that. So the second destroy, the one that the Israelites have to do, is the word abad. Abad means to end something, to make something disappear, or to finish something that's gone astray. Abad. So how they came up and translated that into destroy is a really weird, I don't know, in the ESV, do you have a different word there? Or does it say destroy, destroy? Yeah, subdue might be a better one for this. So God's going to humble them, but it's the Israelites that are going to help to either s to subdue them. And to subdue is to actually take something under your control. So either they submit to Jehovah, the almighty and all holy God, and they become a stranger in Israel, wherefore we have laws for them to just become part of Israel, or they want to stick with their foreign gods. And in that case, they got to go. And that's the thing, Abad, that has to disappear. And spiritually speaking, God will lay waste to these people or their gods, and Israel needs to take care of it and make sure there isn't any evidence of these gods left. And we saw that kind of in the last chapter where it was very clear that their job was to get rid of the idols and get rid of the statues and get rid of all this nonsense. So point here is in the flesh they can't do it, but God can do it. 
So God isn't commanding them falsely or hyping them up. He's giving them truth. You guys are too weak to beat these people, but I'm going to do it for you. And Moses is communicating that. They are supposed to be in God or God will be in them. In other words, Israel is part of a larger organism that God's operating. And I think in John 15, 5, we see, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that it abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And Moses is saying the same thing. Who can stand up to the descendants of Anak? Nobody can. Without God, you can't do anything. But with God, you just get to do the cleanup crew because God's done all the work. You just have to follow the path that he's made for you. And I think that's so... Now suddenly that's incredibly encouraging for God's army to move forward, for God's people to move forward, is that we don't have to do it. So all they have to do is acknowledge the truth that they are feebly strength people and then acknowledge the truth that God is bigger and trust him in that. So God's going to do it. We just get to clean it up. And that's kind of that passage. So it also says quickly. I thought that was an interesting word to throw in there. This idea of getting rid of corruption is something we don't put off till later. It's something that's supposed to happen quickly. So when you have things that, you are, that God's pointed out to you that are destructive to you, it says you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly. Don't take your time with getting rid of these things. That when there's cleanup work to do and the Lord's pointed it out to you, you got to get it done today um, or as soon as possible or as without delay. So, And I think the same thing's true with us. And again, this whole thing started with how, that we should understand this. Sooner we can understand this concept that God points us in a direction and we follow and we're the cleanup crew. I think that's a really interesting way to look at our lives and how we move forward. So... Today has already been said twice in verse 1 and in verse 2. Moses is saying this is the time to do this. It's time to move while he's sitting there teaching and they're looking at the city of Jericho. Do not think, verse 4, in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It's not because you're so special that God's giving you the land. It's because they're so corrupt and they're so lost in idol worship that God's going to give you their land because he wants that religion to die. And you're going to destroy all those idols and Asheroth poles and, uh, and Chemosh statues. And they got to go. Verse 5. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So verse 5 basically repeats verse 4. Again, he's 120 years old. Let's give him a break. But they, the slightly different point in verse 5 is, the first one being, it's not you, it's because of these people. The second one, it's not you, it's because of these people. And God made a promise to your forefathers, which has nothing to do with them either. Verse 6, therefore understand, we get the same word again. Understand this, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are, and this is almost like swearing, you're a stiff-necked people. <laughs> okay. In, in our translation it could be something to the effect of don't get cocky this is not you and it's not your thing that you're doing it's god's thing pride is kind of what this chapter is about when you get prideful then you are not in in the 
relationship that God wants you to have. Pride sucks the joy out of relationships. If you're hanging out with somebody and they think they're all that, it's really hard to stay friends with them because it's hard to hang around people that are just filled with pride and puffed up. And the same thing's true with God. If we're in a relationship with God and we think we did it all and we made it all happen, it's really hard for, I would think it'd be really hard for God to say, oh, that good and faithful servant. Because it's like, no, that cocky, arrogant servant that thinks they did everything that I did all the time. Don't think that in your heart. That's an odd phrase because we usually say we think with our heads, right? And biblically speaking, the heart does thinking too. And we do think with our hearts. Verse 5 it's not your righteousness, is again uh, what we would call emphatic in the Hebrew. It's not your righteousness. So the repeat in verse 5 from verse 4 is kind of like restating it, but it's restating it in the emphatic. It's not your righteousness, verse 4. It is not your righteousness, verse 5. Make sense? So we have an emphatic in verse 5. It's the identical idea that in the New Testament where we see we get salvation by grace, consummated with a heart of humility. You come before the throne of God, and if you think you got justifications and rationale and excuses and reasons, that's actually a barrier between you and God. If you come before God in humility, now you're at a place where God can meet you and say, we're on the right track. Romans 4, verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness too. We don't plow the path. We don't do the work. God does. Same point that Moses is making. This is hard for humans to, especially like humans that got straight A's in high school and humans that are used to tackling problems and humans that are used to doing things and solving things and achieving things, it is really not the relationship that we can have with God. There's nothing wrong with achievement in any way, shape, or form. But when we think it's all us, we're putting ourselves in a tough spot. Now the word stiff-necked. <laughs> it is exactly what it says in the English and the Hebrew. So when they put the dash there, kind of, they're just connecting two Hebrew words that mean stiffened necks. And that what they're usually referring to is mules or oxen that are stubborn and they don't want to go down the road that they're told to go down will stiffen their necks when you try to move them with the harness. And anyone that's been on a farm would know what this looks like. Anyone who's had a stubborn dog knows what this looks like. They brace their legs, they stiffen their neck, and he's basically saying that these people are doing the same thing. It's not a kind thing to say to anyone. You're as stubborn as a mule. And in the old days, they'd even throw in the naughty word, right? It's a hard, even cruel, severe, or obstinate, or even grievous stubbornness. So when you put the two words together in the Hebrew, it's more than just being stubborn. It's being stiff stubborn. So we have a tendency as people, just like the Israelites, to be stiff-necked when it comes to the ways of God versus soft-hearted to his will. What God wants is for us to have a soft heart. And when God says to do this, but we want to do the other thing, instead of stiffening our necks, we say, okay, God, we submit to you. We'll do it your way. That's hard to do. Verse 7, again, the emphatic. Remember. So it's understand. Listen to this. Remember. 
And Moses is just on the pulpit right now, and, and it's hard to pull that out of text. But he is at, he's totally emphatic through this whole chapter. I've told you all these things so far in Deuteronomy. Now listen to what I'm saying. And this is what it all comes down to. Remember, do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been a rebellious against the Lord. Um, I like to remember, don't forget. It's the same concept with two different sides of the coin. Remember is the positive thing to do. Don't forget is the negative thing. So we remember things, we don't forget them. Um, and I just love that a dual concept phrase. I think it's great literature. Um, remembering and not forgetting. And I think that's just a neat thing. And I just wanted to point it out. Good writing on the behalf of Moses. Um, the Bible, God didn't have to put good writing in the Bible, but I love the fact that there is good writing in the Bible. There's brilliant, even if he's using the phrase stiff-necked, it's such a visual image that we can just walk with that language and use it. And I kind of like that. Memory then, this is a tough thing. Steph and I talked about this all week. <laughs> memory is a tough concept because a lot of people come to faith and it's their memory that can be the condemnation in their life and the accusation. I've done all these horrible things. I've failed God in all these ways. I've done this. I was a sinner. I did this. I did this. And that's tough for some people because they come into the kingdom and they say, I know I want to serve the Lord, but I feel horrible about all these things I've done. And this is a tough chapter because Moses is commanding us to remember and not forget. And the New Testament doesn't always do that. So this is a point of difference between the Old and New Testament. And that the Old Testament, this task of remembering is to bring people that are prideful down to humility. In the New Testament, you take people who are in shame and condemnation and you're trying to bring them up to humility. Does that make sense? And there's a point in between where remembering helps us remember that we're not all that great and we're not all that grand. And Moses knew that was coming. He knew God would provide for these people and the danger was pride. And then you got Paul who's talking to people who the danger is shame and condemnation. And he's trying to bring them the other direction. I'll give, again, I don't want you to just listen to my thoughts on that. I think it's right there. For the prideful, Jesus himself says that humility is essential. He said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You don't get to inherit the kingdom, and the Israelites don't get to inherit Israel if they don't humble themselves before the Lord. It's a key staple piece. So Jesus is consistent with Moses when he says that, totally consistent with them, right? But in Christ, we don't stay there in that place, right? So in Christ, we don't remember for the rest of our lives. We also move on. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Colossians, am I saying that right? Colossians. I always want to say galoshes, but that's what you put on your feet. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2, and this is why I picked this verse. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we remember our failings to keep our pride out of the way, but we also forget our failings to keep sin and, from holding us back. And that's such a weird line, but it's biblically speaking, it's so consistent. We are raised to life, so we don't dwell on our failures. 
But if we're prideful, we're already in sin. And maybe remembering that we're not perfect is an okay place to start with God. I just thought that was cool. Romans 8.1, Therefore now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In the flesh there is condemnation. And that's what Moses is providing the Israelites right now. You guys are rebellious, stiff-necked people. I'm condemning you. You are not a good people. In Christ, in God, you guys will be redeemed to be a nation that will bless the entire planet. In the spirit of Christ, we're raised to be champions for the kingdom. But in the flesh, we're just losers doomed to hell. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament capture those two ideas. Now Moses gets into specifics. Here is specific condemnation for Israel. Here are all the ways that they've screwed up throughout the Bible so far. In Horeb, verse 8, you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. Same word that he used earlier for what he's going to do to the Canaanites. He was going to do to you what he's about to do to the Canaanites. I just love that, how he verbs first that. So don't get cocky, right? Because God was about to wipe you off the planet. And I, and then in verse 9, I'll let Moses talk. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And then the Lord delivered me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. If you want to cross-reference, it's all in Exodus 20. And we talk about all that. For us right now, it's really important to note like, and I love this. The Ten Commandments were not written by Moses. They were written by the finger of God. Proof of that wasn't just Moses has taken his word for it. Proof of that was that the entire nation heard what God said. And that's the claim Moses is making here to an audience of people who were there. Because they were all kids when this happened. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. <laughs> They're not gods right now. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. He doesn't even call it a god. I like that. He doesn't say they made a god. He says they made a molded image because that's truth. That's what it is. It's also kind of cool here. This is one of the passages where we get the idea of omnipresence. We have to say God is omnipresent. He can be in all places at all time. And in this particular passage and back in Exodus, God is with Moses on top of the mountain. But God is also with the people of Israel at the bottom of the mountain. God is omnipresent. He's in both places at the same time. He's that powerful. Furthermore, verse 13, the Lord spoke to me saying, I've seen this people and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. We get to see the word again. Let me alone that I might destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. God's plan can go forward in multiple ways. This is a really tough idea for the Calvinists, that God can kind of go either way. And there isn't a one-way path for God. And God's saying this to Moses. I don't believe it's a lie. God could keep all of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and just do it through Moses instead of through Jacob right? And build a nation. And it might even take the same amount of time. And we, we might hit all the same deadlines with the prophecies. But God is that powerful and he can do things in different ways. 
So again, the message of this chapter is don't get too excited about your own worth in front of God because God could use you and what a blessing if he does or he could go on without you and still keep all of his promises. And what a shame if that happens. Verse 15, so I turned and I came down from the mountain and the mountain burned with fire and two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands and I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God and you had made for yourselves a molded calf and you turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. So this is all Exodus 19 through 32. They started worshiping a golden calf that they melted down the Egyptian gold that they took and they made this calf. And this is while they can see the fire on the mountain of Sinai. This is in front of God, visible evidence of God, and they're worshiping a stupid cow. And don't any of us think that we're not capable of being in the presence of God and living our own lives the way we want to live it. We all do it, and we do it all the time. Verse 17, Then I took the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands, and I broke them before your eyes. Covenant broken. Covenant with God, they're disobedient. Shattering those two tablets is a visual representation that the covenant is gone. There's no indication here of any kind of anger on Moses' part. I think in the movies, he gets all mad and he throws him down and there's this big scene. doesn't say that at all. It's more of a mechanical thing. I took the two tablets and I threw them out of my two hands and I broke them before your eyes. He was putting on a display for the Israelites. There's this fire on the mountain that's amazing and alive and vivid. And you have a covenant with that God. And you have this dead hunk of gold in front of you that you would rather have a party around. And he's trying to make kind of a visual image for him. He does it before their eyes. I like that. Verse 18. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate nit bread nor drank water because of all of your sin which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. The word afraid there is yagor. It's the first use we see in the Bible. It's only used five times in the Bible. It is the primitive root of the word fear. It is fear in all of its forms. So a lot of times we say that there should be a fear of the Lord and it's the kind of fear you have in breaking a covenant. This is a different kind of fear. This is the primitive root of fear. It is actually the fear of breaking a covenant plus every other kind of fear you can think of. It's a total and complete fear or terror of what's going on in this situation. So it's true fear, primitive root fear. Uh, and it's not false. When they're worshiping other gods, the fear of the real God should, is actually a real thing because you don't know what he's going to do. And he, they had seven different examples of what he can do to the Egyptians. So what's going to happen next? Because I would be actually horror movie scared of frogs dropping from the sky and invading and filling my home. That's terrifying. It's that kind of fear. And it's the kind of fear of plague. And it's the fear of that angel of death that went through town and you are huddling down in your house with the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, but all around you, you can hear people screaming and yelling. It's that kind of fear too. What is God going to do to us because of your disobedience? And Moses is saying, that's where I was. I remember this. And Grandpa Moses is sharing like, we were. God was ready to rip you guys apart in all kinds of nasty ways. But the Lord listened. Man, 
I love that. I don't know. I just keep reading the word and the more I get into it, the more I think, what a blessing. In the middle of that kind of fear, but the Lord listened to me. And we get another but God. Steph loves the but God moments in the Bible. It's a but the Lord listened to me. That shows the power of intercessory prayer. God can go any way and multiple different directions, millions of different directions. But when a righteous person stops and prays for something, God stops and listens. Think of the Think of the power differential between the human and God. And the fact that God would stop and listen for the love of that one human, that's amazing. That's stunning. And God's going to stop this and do that? When one righteous man intervenes, God actually stops and listens. That gives whole new meaning to Luke 23, 34, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing doesn't it? When one righteous person, and if somebody's perfectly righteous, God stops and he listens. And forgiveness is what Jesus prayed for. If I want a meteor, a mediator, I don't want a meteor, I want a mediator, Jesus is the guy I want praying for me. And that's why that's such a beautiful verse. And we have that same privilege to intercede. When we seek righteousness, not when we achieve it, because that's impossible, but when we seek it, this is a powerful example of prayer being really amazing and how much we take prayer for granted. Everybody I know except for my wonderful, beautiful wife, Stephanie, can take prayer for granted. Like we forget to do it. We take it easy. We, you know, we do it when we feel like it. But man, a real prayer warrior, they know the power they have in that prayer. Verse 20, and the Lord was very angry with Aaron. So in the previous verses, he's angry with Israel but Israel had a high priest who was supposed to see to this stuff, and that was Aaron. So there's a whole different kind of anger with the high priest. And I think this is important because the message is don't get arrogant when you go into the Holy Land and don't think that your priests somehow cover you. And this is something the Pharisees should have read a few times. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron who would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at that time. Then I took your sin. <laughs> it's not a God. It's just your sin. I like that. I took your sin, the calf which you made, and I burned it with fire, crushed it, and ground it very small until it was fine as dust. And this is one of my favorite things Moses did. And I threw the dust into the brook that descended from the mountain. Okay, I'll get into the Aaron thing first. That high priest was doomed. It didn't do it. Then he calls the golden calf sin. That's what it is. He's speaking in truth. When he says, I threw it into the brook, that's a really nice way to put, I made you drink it, which is what it says in Exodus. You remember this? They ground up the calf into dust and then he put it in their drinking water and he made them drink it. So the end result of drinking gold is that it does not digest. It goes right through your system. And when it comes out the other side, you would have sparkly golden flecks in your poop. And that's what idol worship is. We should be disgusted by it. And if the calf had any power at all, then humans wouldn't be able to eat it and poop it. And it, and it, God and Moses are showing the Israelites the value of worshiping things on this earth because even precious gold can just come out in the other end and stink. But I, they would have sparkly poop for two days all over the nation of Israel. You'd go to the, the sun. And I think on those days, God made sure it was a sunny day. 
right? So anywhere you walk outside the camp in those bushes back there, there'd be little sparkly piles of poop hiding all over the place. Or they had a pit, maybe they were more sanitary. And you'd look down in the pit and the sunbeams would go down in there and there'd just be sparkly golden calves smiling back up at you. I just think it's great. I put it in the brook that descended from the mountain. False gods can be destroyed. Moses taught him that. Humans can destroy false gods. That's the second thing he taught them. The third thing is false gods are repulsive and they stink. And they're not good for your country. You've got to get rid of them. This is how you deal with false gods. And by the way, when Moses tells this story, it's exactly what he was asking them to do at the beginning of the chapter. You're going to go in behind. God's going to clear out the Canaanites. You're going to make sure that this stuff's eradicated. Grind that stuff up. Don't keep the idols. Destroy the idols. And he's rem- this is what I did with you guys. This is what you're going to do for the Canaanites. And there's going to be Canaanites that come into the nation of Israel that serve Jehovah. But the idols got to go. The corrupt, nasty garbage has got to end. The false worship has got to stop. And the true worship has to begin. And your high priest isn't going to help you do that. You got to do that. I, isn't that just, when you kind of sum all of this up, you're like, oh, this is really cool stuff. It gets better. Uh, really cool. This is some of my favorite stuff's coming. Also at Tibera. Tibera means burning. It's from Numbers 11. He's just reminding him of what they did. God, if, if you remember in Numbers 11, God sent fire to burn the people that were complaining. Does that ring a bell? Because they were prideful and they thought they knew better. So that's verse 22. Also at Tibera, that's pride. And Massa, which means tempted. That was in Exodus 17.7. Israel doubts that God would provide for them. And so they were te- that was tempted. So also at burning and at tempted. These are not in chronological order because that's not the point here. And Kibbeth Hadava, you provoke the Lord with wrath. That's a whole other instance. That's in Numbers 11. Kibbereth Hadava means graves of craving. Israel was dissatisfied. So they were provided for by God and then they weren't satisfied with the provision. They lusted for more. And so they got to eat all the poison chicken they wanted to. You remember this story? So Moses just reminded them, here's all the times you guys screwed up. Likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh by Nea, saying, go up and possess the land which I've given to you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you did not believe or obey his voice. So that was Numbers 13 and 14. So in Tibera, you got pride. In Massa, you got doubt. In Kibbeth Hadava, you got lust. And in Kadesh Barnea, you got in the sin of inaction. They didn't do what they were told to do. You have been, then he concludes this after he lists off these five different things, the golden calf plus these others. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. (laughs) This is not what you want to hear from your grandpa, right? You guys have been rebellious every day and he's still going to bless you with an inheritance. Yet both Moses and God are still with them. They still have a grandpa. They still have a God that's providing for them. Isn't that beautiful? Every morning they wake up, God's still giving them manna, even though they've been rebellious. Despite all their sins, all their failings, this list of accusations Moses has got against them, they're true, but none of it has stopped God from providing from these people. None of it. God's still taking care of them. And you got to just think, how loving and good of a God do we have? Oh God, what have you done? 
in this situation with Israel, what has he made and what has he done? I could have just, by the way, I read this and I thought, I could have just skipped the entire book of Exodus and Numbers, right? Moses just sums up two, a year of our life of study in a couple verses. So these are the cliff notes in case you missed that year of Bible study. Verse 25, thus I prostrated myself. That can also mean prayer, to lay down or to pray or to put yourself out before the Lord. Thus I prostrated myself before the Lord. 40 days and 40 nights I kept prostrating myself because the Lord had said he would destroy you. Therefore I prayed to the Lord and I said, O Lord God, don't destroy your people or your inheritance of whom you have redeemed through your greatness and who you brought out of who you have brought out of Egypt with your mighty hand. The destroy here is not the same destroy as we saw before. It, it's Shamad. So it's the one God does, right? That destruction. Well, we saw it before, but it wasn't what the people were supposed to do. It's what God would do to the Canaanites. So they were queued up, ready to go the way of the Canaanites, and Moses intervenes and prays prostrating and keep prostrating. I like that. I kept my, I prostrated myself and I kept prostrating myself. Sometimes we pray, but God often in the Bible has these instances where you pray and you keep praying. So when we pray for something, we don't just pray once. We pray persistently or we pray without ceasing. And that's a biblical idea. And I, for me, I admire people that have a gift for prayer because it really is something that I think God gifts people with that ability. We're all supposed to do it. So it's kind of like walking. We all do it. But some people are just athletes and they don't just walk, they run. And that idea of praying and then to keep praying about something persistently, the better we get at it, the more God just operates in our life. And he uses that as a tool. Verse 26 here, that kind of praying in the Hebrew implies an intercession or to come between two people. So we come between people in verse 26 and Moses prostrates himself or lays himself out before the Lord in verse 25. But verse 26 is that intercessory prayer or to come between them. James 5.16 says, Come your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If one person can save an entire nation through his prayers, what will God do through your prayers? Who will he save because of your fervent prayers? We get the word remember again in verse 27. Again, there's a, a theme here in this chapter. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before I go any further, remember your own sins and failings, but also remember the godly people that have gone before you. Remember the trials and tribulations of people that were Christians 100 years ago and 500 years ago and 1,000 years ago. We're not just supposed to remember ourselves. We're also supposed to remember people who came before us, well before us. Abraham would have been well before this generation that he's talking to. So I like that because it's kind of a be a good history student kind of verse. But you're supposed to remember what people have gone through before you. And that's encouraging because God did things in their lives and has kept his promises to those people. So remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look on the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness of their sin. This is part of Moses' prayer to God. Lest the hand from which you brought us should say, because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land which he promised them, 
and became and because he hated them, he has brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out by your mighty power and by your outstretched arm. Moses didn't just pray for the Israelites for their own sake. He prayed for the Israelites because of God's plan for God's sake. I think this is a brilliant prayer. By the way, we have an example recorded in the Bible of an intercessory prayer. So when you say, I don't know how to pray, it's kind of like the Bible lays it out. Like This is how to pray. You just talk to God and ask him for things. But Moses' heart is so in line with God that he's praying for the Israelites because of God's ability, because of God's plan, and because of God's power. You see that all in those verses? Verse uh, 28 in the middle, because the, he doesn't want people to say that God's not able to do things because the Lord was not able. And then there's a comma, and because he hated them. Like, he didn't want people to think ill of the Lord because he's brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. He didn't want the plan of God to be doubted by other people. God, don't do this because people are going to think that you're a mean God and you're not. Yet they're your people. Um, and they're your herons who brought the, you, who you brought out by your mighty power. If the Israelites are all wiped out by God, people are going to think God's not very powerful. He brings his people out, but then they die in the wilderness and God's power is in question. So these are the kinds of motivations that should motivate our prayer. When we want God to change a heart or do something, it's so that God gets glorified through that. God saved this soul because if that scumbag gets saved, think of all the glory you're going to get when that happens. Right, And so that kind of prayer is one that lines up with God's will. Remember here is the same remember we saw before. We remember these servants of God that get proclaimed. When a sinner gets saved, redeemed, and restored, God is shown to be powerful, merciful, and loving, and able. That's how we pray. And when we pray those kinds of things, when a sinner is given a second chance, it has something to do with God's plan being carried out. That's a beautiful thing that gives glory to God. When a sinner proclaims the wonders of God, it's stunning and wonder-filled. It's astounding when that happens. When a, somebody who's lost becomes found, we can celebrate how that happened. And that's what we should be praying for. The mighty power of God in, in, at the end of verse 29. I want to point out this too. In verse 26, the word you, your, or your, your, you, your, you, your, is seven times. There's seven yous. And Moses prays using, talking to God, saying, you're this, you're that, your people, your nation. And then in verse 20, I'm sorry, in verse 29, we say virtually the same sentence, you, your, yet, you, your, your outstretched arm, is used five times. Israel is God's people and his display of his power. And there's a pattern here as to how God prays talking to God, about God, and about God's plan. Moses is aligning himself to him. You guys are all staring at me. Maybe you didn't think that was so cool, but I think it's kind of cool. Moses kind of bookends at verse 26, and then in verse 29, he kind of uses the same sentence. In the middle, you got verses 27, 29. Uh, so you've got this remembering the past is kind of what's packaged between there. Remember your past. That pride isn't part of the pre present. Remember you did these things and these people. At the end of the day, when Moses prays, it's about God and it's all about God. It always is. God, we want your will to be done, not our own. Kind of a cool chapter.
the chapter break between nine and 10 is weird and shouldn't be there because the prayer just kind of, the story of Moses just kind of keeps rolling here. So I'm going to keep rolling into chapter 10 too. At that time, the Lord said to me, remember, he's still talking to the Israelites. This is still part of Moses's narrative. So he, we just ended the chapter on his prayer and Moses is going on with his story. At that time, the Lord said to me, hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood. I hewed two tablets of stone like the first. I went up the mountain having two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and I came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark, which I had made. And there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. Okay, now we get the image that was all in, in the book of Exodus. Moses sums it all up and we get this image. The first time the law was in my hands and it didn't work and the law broke. It, it, it was dysfunctional. It didn't happen. The second time I came down, I took that law and I put it in a safe place. And then they took the ark and they put that in a safe place. And then they took that safe place and gave it layers of goat's stuff. And then they put it in a tabernacle. And then they surrounded the tabernacle with a fence like of sheets of white stuff. And they put that in the middle of their camp. The second time the law came, it went right to the heart of Israel, physically and spiritually both. First time they broke the rules, the covenant was busted. The second time the covenant sits right in their heart and in the heart of Israel. And I just love that idea. The conversation here shifts. Now Moses is not reminding them of all their sins. He's reminding them, I don't know if you noticed this, but now he's reminding them of how the law came to be at the heart of their nation and sits in the middle of their camp. Remember all your sins and how you screwed up. And then in chapter 10, it's remember how the law came to be in the middle of that camp, how it came to change who we were and changed our culture. God renews his covenant with the people, not because of what they did, but because of Moses's intercessory prayer, nothing that they've done. The Lord has spoken to you. The claim of the Moses is the claim of the Bible is not that Moses invented the law. The claim of the Bible is that God invented the law and the first person witnesses of God speaking from the mountain received that law and they cherished it and kept it in the middle of their nation. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. We hold the law of God as God's very words and that's why we make it righteous in our life. That's why we hold it up. It's not just a book that's printed. It's a record of what God said to humanity. And we lift it up. Forgiveness then has to be shown to be real. The nation gets second chances. Um, and we get second chances. And I think that's kind of the only way to show forgiveness is if there's been an infraction and somebody forgives that infraction. That's the only place that forgiveness can exist. So for God to introduce the idea of forgiveness to the Israelites, it's kind of important that they screwed up so that he could forgive them and introduce the feeling of forgiveness. And when we've been forgiven, it's easy to forgive other people. And that forgiveness thing comes into play. Forgiveness is also rooted in the idea that the Israelites recognized what they did wrong. And if there isn't that kind of humility there, which is what we started talking about in chapter 9, it's hard for God to renew a covenant with somebody who thinks they're right about everything. So Israel repents, 
They come into a place of forgiveness and God forgives them. That's based on grace. That law gets protected and guarded in the Ark of the Covenant. The law that represents forgiveness is the thing that actually gets saved. The other law found is probably a bunch of chunks on Mount Sinai to this day. Unrecognized little rocks and stones, probably sand by this time of life. But this law gets cherished and kept and held on to it. Remember on top of the ark, there's a mercy seat. <laughs> so you got the law of grace inside of a golden box with a mercy seat on top of it. That's the image God wants them to have. Ancient contracts usually had two copies. And it's interesting that in this ancient contract between God and his people, there were actually two copies written out. But the one copy that the people had was busted. The copy that gets kept in God's holy tabernacle is kept. So even though the ancient world, this is the same as the ancient world, where each nation gets a copy of the law, and they usually would keep that covenant right in the capital city of that nation. Same thing's happening here, only the Israel's version of the covenant was busted, and God's version gets held on to and cherished and held. I thought that was a cool image. On a side note about the priesthood, they're not really mentioned in any of this. So instead of elevating your priest to be holier than thou people, priests really had nothing to do with this because this was uh, God's mediator, Moses, that does that sort of thing. Um, interestingly, the word that gets used here, ark, it's not called an ark of the covenant. It's just called an ark. It's just a box. And the word aron in the Hebrew can mean a chest. The other word that it's used for is coffin. So... I thought that was kind of cool. Like, there's two ways you can interpret the law. The law is either death or it's being held in a cherished box like a, like a keepsake, you know, kind of treasure chest. It's either a treasure or it represents death. And Paul talks about that too. There's the law of sin and death and there's the law of life. Um, when we put God's law in our heart, it becomes a place of life. Um, when we don't put God's law in our heart, and we bust it up on the side of the mountain and break that covenant, it's actually the same thing that's going to condemn us to death. And that's a hard message to hear. Um, anyways. Um, it, Israel has carried, another thought with this kind of imagery, it, Israel has carried two arcs. And I think that's an, a, an interesting concept. The Ark of the Covenant, God's Covenant, is the second ark that they've carried as a nation. The other ark that they carried as a nation, if you remember, in Genesis 50, verse 26, it's the exact same word. They had an aron, a, a box of death, in which they carried Joseph's bones out of the heart of Egypt. So they have carried a box with a bunch of dead bones in it. And now they carry another box, same word, that has the law of God in it and is covered in gold with a mercy seat on top of it. I just think that imagery is really cool. And they still have Joseph's bones somewhere, but they don't sit at the center of the country. In the same way, if you want to take that spiritual imagery, we still have the dead bones of baggage from our old life. But we also have God's love as a golden treasure chest inside of us that should be in the center in the middle of our life. And it's not the bones we think about, even though we have to carry them with us because God said the Israelites had to take those bones and bury them up in Israel when they get there. But at this point in time, they still have the bones of Joseph in a word that's the exact same as the Ark of the Covenant. They have an Ark of Bones and they have an Ark of the Covenant. Point made. I thought that was kind of cool, so I thought I'd share it. 
The word journey that we have in these verses is the same word we've seen before. In a, it, the, the idea of journey is naka, and it means to pull up. And when we think of journey, we think of moving forward. But when they think of journey, it's about pulling up your tent pegs in order for you to move anywhere. And that's kind of a neat idea, because when you think of me taking a journey and I move forward, I'm choosing the direction. But for the Israelites, when they use the word naka, there's no direction implied. They're going to pick up their stakes because God's told them it's time to move, and they're just going to follow God wherever he leads. So I've kind of fallen in love with the word naka. And I'm noticing that I'm starting to remember some Hebrew words as we get five books into the Old Testament. Um, but that word naka is there too, and it means to lift up. Um, so Moses makes this commentary. He uses uh, um, some pieces here in the next few verses. First of all, the next few verses are a parenthetical. Uh, they're added into the book. So Moses kind of added some notes here. And we represent that with parentheses around verse 6 to the end of verse 9. You see that? So this is something that's kind of in the scrolls would have been set apart from the rest of the scroll. What's interesting about these is we see two names that are not in the book of Numbers. So that tells us something that Moses is saying something here. Like, first of all, it's an aside. Second, he's using, he gave that list of where they lifted up their stakes and moved to here. And remember at the end of the book of Numbers, there's this whole record of where they went. There's two places here that aren't in that record. That doesn't mean they didn't stop at these places, but it does mean Moses might be trying to say something. That's a clue, like that we should pay attention to these verses. Um, and then the other kind of thing here, and I think this is a spiritual commentary, brilliantly worded as a physical event. So I'll just read it. Um, but notice a couple of, this is the third clue that we should be tuned into these verses. Notice that it shifts to the third person. Not Moses talking about himself, I did this and I did that. And he's not talking about what you did, which is the second person. He's talking in like the third person. So it's almost like he moves into like prophetic mode here. And in the, like, so three big flags before we get even into these. Um, and the rabbinical tradition is that this is a prophetic statement. Uh, so an odd, very odd prophetic statement. But this is part of what I like about Bible study, is that this is what I can spend a whole afternoon on, and you get to just hear it in five, ten minutes. Verses, verse 6, Now the children of Israel journeyed from the wells of Be'eroth Ben-Yaken to Moserah, where Aaron died and where he was buried. And Eleazar, his son, ministered as a priest in his stead. From there they journeyed to Gadgoda, and from Gadgoda to Jothbathah, the land of rivers of water. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. Huh. Okay, I'm going to break this down in all the Hebrew words, because there's a lot less Hebrew words, thankfully, than English words. And I think the English translation here is adequate. But remember, in the Hebrew, there's no tenses, unless they really point out a tense. And here they don't. This is all without tense. It could have happened yesterday, today, or tomorrow. We don't know the, the, the tense of any of this. And the other thing in the Hebrew is that you got to add those words between the big words. And contextually, the Hebrews would often do that with jots and tittles and whatever. When those are removed, it's open to translation in a variety of ways. And prophetic voice in the Bible often does that because it's relevant to, 
This is actually what happened, but it's also something that's happening, and it's also something that can happen in the future. And you can translate it viably in any of those tenses. So work with me on this. Get your notes ready. Starting with the sin and the broken tablets, we get Be'er Bene Yakin. In the Hebrew, that means the wells of the sons of Jakan. Jakan, if you look that one up, means let them oppress, or it could mean perverse. So it's not a good thing, right? So in First Chronicles 142, we kind of see that uh, that Jakan thing kind of fleshed out a little more. Mosera in the Hebrew means bonds or chastisement. So just that first sentence, you're like, wait, what's he talking about here? If you read this in the Hebrew, it says children of Israel, Naka, took up wells of oppression and per the wells of sons of oppression and perverseness to bonds and chastisement. And you're like, what is he talking about? Because these are weird places. Where Aaron, and if you remember the word Aaron means light bringer in the Hebrew, where Aaron died and was buried. So light bringer is dead and buried. Muth Kabar is kind of what that is. Light bringer, dead, buried. The next part is kind of cool in the Hebrew too. Eliezer, remember his name means God helps or God has helped, we don't know the tense, or God has raised someone up. He's, it's like when you help someone up when they've fallen. And that's Eleazar. He helped him up, right? So God aids is another way to interpret Eleazar. His son, which is Ben, in literally, and figuratively, or the widest sense of the term son. So it's not only Aaron's son, Eleazar, it's also Aaron's Spiritual son, Eliezer, the guy he's discipling and training, taking care of. This is kind of cool. Did you look all this up, by the way? Okay. I sent a note out to Grant and some other people, and I was like, check this out. And like, am I just seeing weird things? Are you with me so far on all these words? Okay. In the Strong's Concordance, the idea of son is someone who builds a family name. So a son might not even be a biological son. A son could be anyone who carries the name forward appropriately. So God has aided his son to carry his name forward. And so when you're dealing with Aaron and Eleazar, so Aaron, Lightbringer is dead and buried, and then his son helps to lift the ministry of the, the priesthood to move forward, right? So, and, and that's true of Aaron and Eleazar for sure. Ministered as a priest in his stead is just, Kahan in the Hebrew. So we've added a lot of English words there. And we do that because we want to try to make meaning out of this. And it's hard to make meaning. Kahan is a verb, and the verb is to carry out the role of the priest. It could be translated mediate. It could also be translated minister. But it is the verb of ministry. It's to do things that a priest would do. Does that make sense? So the light bringer is dead and buried, but God helps his son to carry on the role of the ministry, to minister, to mediate. To, I think a good English translation would be priestify, right? He helps his son priestify, to do the priest thing. So you broke the tablets, and then here's kind of the translation. Kids of Israel pull up wells from the sons of oppression and bondage where Lightbringer was dead and buried, and God raised up his son to mediate for him. Right? Okay, keep going. <laughs> this Hebrew is amazing stuff. It's like, bam. 
So what happens after that happens? Because if you read this with any sort of spiritual implication, you're starting to see a messianic passage form here. If you're just reading raw Hebrew and you're not throwing in all the English, it's like, wow, this is really cool. So here's what happens next. From there they journeyed, they lifted up Naka to Gadgoda, and Gadgoda is <laughs> um, from Gadgoda to Jabathath, a land of rivers of water. The actual words here, there's only actually six words. Naka, Gadgoda, Gadgoda, Jabatha, Nakal. Gadgoda is a slashing place, or it could mean thunder. And when you see Hebrew words doubled like that, where they're two in a row, it actually means super slashing or ultra thunder, right? Or it could mean slashing and thunder. But it usually means kind of an exclamation point, super duper. And they repeat the word when they want to add emphasis to the word. It's the only place that we see this in the Bible. Uh, we know that it was a location of some sort that was good for killing things. It was a place of slaughter, right? So it's a proper noun for a place. But the root words that are used to make it up is it's a place where things get killed, right? So that's what Gudgoda is. Jatbatha means pleasantness or goodness. The root word is to be pleasing. You put those two together and you get them in a sentence, lifted up, super slashing, pleasantness and goodness. And when there's any sort of projection in the contest, it means we went from super slashing to pleasantness or goodness. Something beautiful came out of something horrible. And again, as a messianic passage, this is crazy. Then rivers, the word is nakal, means a torrent valley or stream. It's not the water itself. It's the left, it's the result or the impact of the water. So wadi would be, you might, in Aramaic, you might say, or we might say valley or um, canyon that was carved out by the water. Um, Isaac dug in the Nacal and he found springs of living water back in, in Genesis. So he, it's that same word. And the water, mayim, is a multiplied primitive noun. In other words, it's better translated waters. So it's a plural of the word water. So where we in the English have rivers in the plural, that's better in the singular. And then we have water in the singular, and it should probably in the, be in the plural. But then that reads funny in the English, right? Because we would read something like a land of river of waters. However, in the Hebrew, and if you're reading this thing, river of waters, and it would be a torrent of waters, so that riverbed is where a rushing water would come. And we know from Genesis that that's where Isaac dug and found springs of water that were alive and, fl and flourishing and rushing, gushing out. We have gushing water, right? So let me put this back into a, a, a literal translation into the English. Kids of Israel pull up wells of the sons of oppression and bondage where Lightbringer was dead and buried and God aided up his son to mediate for him, lifted up from the slashing place to goodness, a torrent of waters. That's the Hebrew. And you're like, wow, interesting aside, Moses, that you're putting that in there, right? And I'm just like, this is why I read the Bible. It's verses like this where I'm like, this is completely inspired writing. Humans didn't think this up. This isn't Moses' brilliance. This is him waking up in the morning going, okay, God, I'll put that in there for you. But how would he even start thinking about a light bringer getting dead and buried? 
you know, and just the way he's saying it, the way he puts it together here, it's a perfectly viable translation to translate this in such a way that it's absolutely stunning, right? Listen to this in John 3:37. On the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The light bringer has to get dead and buried before the rivers of water start to flow. And it's God who's going to raise him up to become the priest for us, to mediate for us to do that. Just is crazy. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4.35. What kind of God do we have that even thinks like this? Puts this stuff in the heart of Moses so that he writes it down. Verse 8. The Levites were supposed to bear this, to stand before God. They don't get land because they're going to get God. And then in verse 8, as a typology, we can also read this as an image of the church. Carrying the fulfilled law out into the world, the priesthood then carries forward the heart of the law, and God's going to make it happen. The priesthood's supposed to intercede for the people that can't do it on their own. This is why we go and look at the Bible for gems like this, because you just put all this together and you think this is absolutely incredible. So after this torrent of living water comes out, at that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the law, that ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister him, to bless his name to this day. Remember the priesthood after Christ is anyone who believes on his name becomes the priesthood. And our job is to then carry that to the world. Levi doesn't care about the world that we're looking at. Their inheritance is with his brother. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God has promised him. In the, at the, the, this era of history, the inheritance that we have is that God's going to actually be in us, and that joy and abundance comes right out of our heart. Pretty cool. Thanks, Lord. Verse 10, at this time, I stayed in the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. I just got to stop. Is that really cool, or am I just going geeked out on that? Those last few verses? That's wicked cool, isn't it? Danny? Yes, no? You're just humoring me now? Okay. I, that stuff to me, I'm just like, I am so humbled in the face of God. I just think that stuff is incredible. Nice aside for Moses to add. Oh, just, by the way, Messiah's going to come. As the, fir- as the At the first time, I stayed in the mountain. Note that he goes back to the first person here. Like, clearly those last few verses were, he was in a different mode for those verses. But now he goes back to his narrative. At, as at the first time, I stayed in the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. The Lord also heard me at that time, and the Lord chose not to destroy you. Hallelujah. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, begin your journey before the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. God says He's going to, Moses is going to walk holy in front of Israel. God's command to Moses is to begin his journey. So I think it's kind of cool when we look at what God often commands us to do. And sometimes he just asks people to start their journey and go live it before other people. And that's what he kind of asks of Moses. Arise, begin your journey before the people. And the point is to walk our walk in relationship with other people so they can see how we live and how we do things. 
in other words, we open our door for a reason and our house is open for a reason. And I think that's such a, just kind of a cool idea that uh, we want to walk and we want to do it as holy as we can in front of people, even in front of people that are not quite walking with the Lord. And possess, that he may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers. Uh, Moses here knows that he won't go into the Holy Land. His job's to begin his journey before the people, that the people may go in and possess the land. So Moses' primary role is not to benefit himself, but it's to benefit these people that he loves. That's the. Now we get into the essence of the law. We're back to the second person in verse 12. So we shifted from first person back to second person. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and to keep the commandments which the Lord has statutes which I command you today for your good. Uh, Moses is repeating what he said back in Deuteronomy 6. We talked about the Shema already. Uh, that idea that we fear the Lord, we walk in his ways, we love him, we serve him, and we do it with all our heart, mind, and soul. And that, that idea of how we do that in verse 13, we keep his commandments. Uh, Micah 6, eight summarizes what we're supposed to do. And he, in Micah 6, eight it breaks it down. He has shown me, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of me but to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. What I thought is interesting about the two passages is that they're reversed. Um, Moses starts and builds progressively. You start with the fear of the Lord in verse 12 so that you can build your walk and you can't really love him unless your walk with him is in line. And you, when you love him, the desire is to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. And when you serve the Lord, you make an attempt to keep his commandments. It progressively walks you through the faith journey. Uh, Micah kind of works it in reverse from the good stuff and works kind of backwards. And I don't know if you kind of noticed that. When we walk in all his ways, it implies that we go forward. I thought this was kind of a cool idea. Um, walking in the way of the Lord means we are moving towards something. And standing still is what we're supposed to do in the face of the enemy. But when we're with the Lord, our, we are walking and moving. And I thought that's an interesting contrast that's kind of buried in this chapter, in the, these two chapters. Um, they're called the stand. Um, or who can stand in the face of Amok at the beginning of chapter 9. But here we're walking with the Lord and it applies movement. Um, I think one way to think about that, and this is really convicting, but when you think about how you live your days and your minutes and your hours, one of the good questions we can ask ourselves if we just want to abuse ourselves with conviction is what if the Lord returned right now? Like, if we are caught doing Bible study, I'm okay with that. Like, okay. But are there moments in my week where I would not be okay with the Lord returning at that moment? And this made it, this ruined tons of things in my life. This ruined certain kinds of music where I'm like, what if the Lord returns and I'm singing this? Ah, I don't know if I want to keep doing that. What if the Lord returns while I'm watching this movie? Is this how I want to get caught doing it? And I think the idea of walking in all of his ways it doesn't say walk in some of God's ways or kind of walk with the Lord or maybe walk with the Lord. It uses the word all. And you know I like the phrase all in gospel. But it is one of those moments where it's not a partial thing. 
And, and I always thought that's a super convicting question. What if God returns right now? And would I be okay with getting caught doing this? Um, and that's a tough question. God tells us how to walk and it's to not disobey him. If we walk in his ways, he calls us righteous, not because we are, but because he calls us that. He puts that on us. If we don't walk in his ways, God calls that sin, not because of our righteousness, but because we have chosen to not obey God. So the Messiah is going to help us teach us how to walk, and that's consistent throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 2.3 um, talks about um, from Sinai where Jacob lived um, and uh and Jerusalem, uh, and it says the Messiah will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we are promised in the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, he's going to teach us a little more about how to walk in his ways. In the meantime, we just get Moses giving us kind of these general, you know, be fearful of God, love the Lord, serve the Lord, but we're going to get a Messiah that gives us a lot more instruction on how to do that. It's one of the promises of the Old Testament. Also, you see the, almost the exact same words in Micah 4.2. Uh, it says we're going to love him. That's the Shema, chapter 6. The word is ahav. It's a primitive root. It's to love in all the different ways. We're going to serve him, avad, a very close, closely, uh, you know, verbally a close word. It means to work or to serve. And it kind of means it in a broad sense. So we want to work it for the Lord. Um, to be bound to service is to be bound to a master. Uh, in all Old Testament references, service has to do with who your master is, is who you served. Um, we think about who we're bound to. And if we have a job and our friend calls us and says, hey, do you want to hang out? It's really easy for us to say, no, I got to work. Spiritually speaking, if we serve the Lord God, we should be able to say the same thing and get good at it. It shouldn't be a big deal. I can't do that right now. I'm doing this for the kingdom. And we're supposed to serve that Lord and we're supposed to be bound to that service. Um, <laughs> this, by the way, and I keep pointing these out because Deuteronomy is where Jesus liked to go. Um, but that idea that we're supposed to serve the Lord is one of the responses that Jesus has to Satan. So he had three responses to three temptations in the wilderness with Satan. The wilderness, by, by the way, being the area the Israelites have been hanging out in. And, um, and one of his responses to Satan is in Matthew 4.10, away with you, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so when Satan asks him to do something for himself or somebody else, it's interesting how Satan, it, Jesus just responds to Satan saying, no, I got to work today. I'm doing, I serve God. I don't serve that other stuff. So that's not who I serve. And announcing who we serve is a great way to talk about it. We love God. We serve God. No one can serve two masters. That's not possible. Matthew 6.24. You either hate one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You can't really serve two masters because they're in conflict with one another. You only get 16 hours in a day. You got to choose how to spend those hours. And you can't, there's often a conflict between those things. The heart and soul goes back to the Shema again, chapter 6. It's both an intellectual work in our head. It's why we study the Bible. It's also a work that happens in our heart. It's why we fellowship and eat food together and minister to one another after we're done. I would suggest that studying the Bible is far less important than what happens after we study the Bible. It's the fellowship and hanging out all night till 11. Like you guys are still hanging out when Steph and I go to bed usually. 
That's more important than what we do when we study the Bible. But the Bible prepares us to do that part with love. Because it's hard to get all, you know, when you're studying the Bible together, it's hard to argue with each other. Because we're all kind of in the same place in the Bible. We're working on a lot of the same things. So I thought that was a kind of an important thought, that what happens after we do the teaching of the Word is when the heart and soul comes together. It's when the rubber meets the road. Anyways. All that, and I want to point out, like, see, these are things we overlook, too. That idea of heart and soul, it's all the small talk after the teaching. It's the planning for what we're going to do for food. It's the planning for what we're going to do together for fun. That that's part of it, too. Fellowship is having fun together. Because if you really try to say the kingdom of God is we just sit and study the Bible all day, you're going to turn off about half of the population in the United States. But part of the kingdom of God is us planning to do things together and figuring out the best food we can possibly eat. Like, that's joyful and amazing. It's that cool stuff that we think about. It's the jokes we tell each other. It's encouraging one another when somebody's down. It's admonish, admonishing somebody when they're prideful. <laughs> you know, and that goes together. And it's praying for one another. And we've already been shown an example of intercessory prayer. It's all the work. It's the stuff that we do when we work it for the kingdom. And that's how we do that for the kingdom. And we're not free to serve ourselves when we've chosen a bigger master than ourselves. Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's pretty cool that when, God, when we're God's our master, he actually tells us to help people out around us. And that's our obligation, our command to do that. So God teaches everything he's going to teach, but it's not us that does that. Anything I would teach you tonight out of the Word, and it's been a long one tonight, it's kind of worthless. At the end of the day, if it doesn't turn into encouragement, fellowship, fun, feasting, prayer together, worship together, then it's kind of without a point. If the Word of God, if God doesn't teach us from the Word himself, it doesn't matter how I interpret it or how I share it with you. It has to sink in. I think that would, what Moses is summarizing and what he's talking about here, I think that's what he's doing. To keep it as that guard and protect idea, shamar again, uh, Israel's duty is to guard the words of God. And then finally in verse 12 and verse 13, we're asked rhetorically, um, but we don't need to be told this. We kind of, we know what to do. We should be doing these things. Verse 14. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens Belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. Um, in the in the Hebrew, <laughs> this is six words: heaven, 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 Jehovah, Elohim, earth. And so in the Hebrew, that's all that's there. When you repeat something three times, and the word heaven there is shamayim, which frankly is a way cooler word than heaven, shamayim. And that's where I want to end up. I want to spend all of eternity in shamayim. That's such a great word. Katie, you should use it in one of your fantasy books. Heaven is threefold here. It's a physical realm. It's the inheritance that we're going to get. Um, heaven is also biblically a spiritual place that's not existent here. So though we can have heaven here on earth with our fellowship with God and with each other, we also have a spiritual heaven that we're promised that's a different place. Heaven then exists both in our hearts, on the earth, and in some other place that's a completely spiritual realm. And that third one is the one we're made for. We're made for that heaven, but we have to exist for a season on earth. Heaven, 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 
Lord God earth. God owns it all. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord. It's his ownership. He gets it. Also the earth with all that's in it, he owns that too, is the implication. He owns all the heaven and he owns all the earth. Verse 15, the Lord is delighted only in your fathers to love them. He chose their descendants after them. You above all people as it is this day. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Ah, oh, thank you, Grandpa Moses. It's not all condemnation. The whole point of the condemnation is so that they shake off that stiff-neckedness. The whole point of being told you're a sinner is so that you stop sinning. The whole point of any kind of truth about our sinfulness is so that we can come into redemption before God. We cut away the unneeded parts of our heart, um, which shows that circumcision is a spiritual image that we're supposed to understand. But you take some things that aren't needed and you get rid of it. And you kind of get it down to what you need um, and you use and you choose to follow God. If we're thankful for God's calling, that's never an excuse to sit still. It's about going into action with what we believe. So don't be stubborn about that. Be a servant of a perfect God by being as much of a servant as you can. Verse 17, again, another kind of beautiful thing. Verse 17, this is great. I'm just going to read it in the Hebrew. Jehovah, Elohim, 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 Adon, Adon, El. It says God seven times in the perfect tense. Right? So that's all verse 7 says. So be delighted only in your fathers to love them, for he chose their descendants after them above all the people that's you as it is this day. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. God, 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 God. Did I get the right number? Did anybody count? Okay. Saying God seven times is perfection. It's not only complete, three. Oh, and in case you want complete, there's three Elohims in there, right in a row. Elohim, 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 which is a three-part word, um, all in one word, and you get it three times. That's three, three times. And in the whole sentence, you get God seven times. It's, if you don't get it, Moses is trying to say this is all about God. He owns the heavens. He owns the earth. He chose your forefathers so get rid of the stuff in your heart that's unnecessary. Don't be stubborn and disobey this. God, 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 God. You have to re-listen to that on the tape. I don't even know if that was seven. I'll read it in the English. For the Lord, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. <laughs> and he doesn't take bribes. You know, a great verse to memorize, too. Just say, I want to memorize that in the Hebrew. God, 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 God. He's mighty and awesome. Doesn't show partiality with people. Anyone that serves God, he'll take them. Doesn't matter. Verse 18, he administers justice for all the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Here's the attributes of God listed out for us. This is great. Number one, he's mighty and awe-worthy. In the Hebrew, that's yare. He's powerful in terms that we should have awe of his power. That's God. Number two, he's not bribable, which is important when you're dealing with the Canaanite gods and polytheism. Those gods were bribable 
If you want something from those gods, you just pay enough money and they'll give you what you want. But not this god. He's actually above that. So that's the kind of god that this nation is going to honor with their fair courts, where everyone is equal under the law. Number three, God is just and he's generous, if you, especially to those that are alone and strangers. And what we do with strangers is we give them food and clothing. So we provide for people. If we know people that don't have food and don't have proper clothing, we just go to the store and buy it for people. That's what we do. And I think that's an opportunity, especially in America where most people have food and clothing. If you really run into somebody who is hungry, there's no question what you're going to do. You're going to feed them. You're going to find food and give it to them. And you give them clothes. That is not the same thing as like a monthly donation through your credit card to some organization. That is actually face-to-face -face ministry helping people. If we get those kinds of opportunities, we got to jump at that. Because that's a real opportunity to be like God and take care of those people. Because God did stuff for us, we do stuff for other people. So biblical, there's an administration of justice. And that justice is to give food and shelter to people, not to destroy people. I think it's just such a beautiful thing. Moses concludes, restating his main point that he said at the very beginning. So this is all a contract with God. You shall feel the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and, you shall, and to him you shall hold fast, which implies falling and grabbing onto someone's ankles and holding fast and, 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 and gripping. This is what we told people that weren't very big on the football field. If you got to stop them at the line, just fall to the ground and grab their knees and hug them like, hold on for dear life. Hold fast. Because the biggest guy in the world can't go anywhere if he can't move his feet. And the smallest guy in the world, if he grips those feet, can kind of stop him from moving. Now, it might hurt when he falls on top of you, but that's why we give you pads. And that was just football instruction. Yes, he's 100 pounds bigger than you. Grab his ankles and hold on for dear life. That's going to be all we need from you on this play. Um, anyways, hold fast to God. Take oaths in his name. He is your praise. And he is your God. I love that. The is there is in italics because it wasn't actually there in the Hebrew. Um, it, it should read in English, he your praise. The thing we celebrate is God. If you're never looking for God and you never see him, it's hard to celebrate him and, and tell other people about what you're seeing. He your praise and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 people. And now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of the heavens, the stars of heaven in multitude. Moses keeps saying the same thing in different ways, like a good teacher does. He just rephrases things to help you understand. And it's an indication here that the spirit of what he's saying is more important than the letter of the law. If I'm a lawyer, I say things once and I say them perfectly. Moses says them in 10 different ways, but he's saying the same thing every time. It's not the letter of the law, and this is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees got lost in the Old Testament. They just started reading the letter of the law and tried to do every word. And Moses is saying this is more about your heart. He keeps saying it's in your heart that this needs to happen, and he rephrases it in a variety of different ways. And I think he was trying to prevent legalistic people from misreading what he said. There's no perfect way to say this. Just do it, right? Hold fast that idea of clinging it's also used in terms of marriage. And from this passage forward, when God talks about Israel, it's often referred to as a groom and a bride. So when it says clung to, a husband should cleave to his wife. 
he should grab her ankles and hold on for dear life. And that's the same kind of clinging that goes on. And so from here forward, Israel is a wife and God is the groomsman. And Israel's the bride that should be clinging to her groomsman. And then I, I'll finish on the he is your praise thing. Uh, there's no verb there. It just says he, your praise. Another word for praise is song. He's your song. When we take on God's name, God becomes the song in our heart and what we sing about. There's no other identification that we have when we take on God's name. The multiplication that happens when we take on God's name is that he starts to come out of every pore of our being. The only thing that stands in the way from that is our hearts, our minds, and our souls, two great adversaries to the praise and worship of God. Because we get in our own way more than anything else. And I'll finish on this. All of this amazing advice is as they're looking at worse problems than any of us have ever experienced. Starvation and death behind them in a wilderness and people that are bigger than them in front of them and they got to conquer that territory. And Moses is saying, fix your hearts. The only problem that you have is not those guys. It's your relationship with God and your pride and your arrogance that can get in the way of that. Chapter 9, chapter 10. Dear Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for Moses that he can put in a side note that just, you know, drops in a messianic passage about the Messiah right in the middle of a passage like this. We thank you for the Israelites uh, that followed Joshua, that second generation out of Egypt, that did what they were told and were faithful to you uh, and gave us an example, Lord, that we can conquer any giant. We can conquer anything in front of us when we submit to the idea that in our flesh, we can't do anything, but when we submit to you, you can do everything. Lord, we love the idea that you clear the way and we just clean up <laughs> and we just purge idols and get that stuff out of our life. Um, we serve you with our hearts and our minds and our souls. That's what you've called us to do. Lord, we thank you that we can study your word. We have this privilege of this evidence of of the words of God recorded through someone that was verified uh, with hundreds of thousands of people listening to God and then seeing Moses write things down. Uh, Lord, that the veracity of your word uh, is so rooted and so uh, founded uh, in witness and in, in experience that people had. We just thank you that they cherished those words, they kept those scrolls, and that they meticulously, meticulously kept a record of your intervention on earth so that future generations could read it. We just thank you for that. Lord, we pray for all the folks that are not here at Bible study tonight. We just pray that you bless them. Uh, may your Holy Spirit be on them. May you be with them during the holidays. Uh, be with their families as they're having those family conversations. Uh, Lord, help them to just exude your love for them uh, through every pore of their beings. Help the joy of the Lord be the thing that, that uh, pours out of them and out of their mouths and their lives. That, that you can be their song uh, and that, that when people hear us and see us and meet folks uh, that are in your word, Lord, all they hear is your song, uh, calling out and inviting people to come to the feast. Uh, so Lord, help us to submit to you, help pride to not get in the way. Lord, no matter what good things are happening in our life, help us to stand guard and beware of what pride can do to us, uh, that we can start thinking we did all that when, Lord, you did all that. 
Uh, you gave us breath and you haven't taken it away and you've given us opportunity. Uh, Lord, we just follow behind you and we just clean up. So help us, Lord, to take up and take that journey wherever you lead and follow your lead in everything that you do. We praise you, we love you, we lift you up. Uh, and we just pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us in fellowship and ministry after the teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.